another book I've been reading is uh, called Living the Sabbath. And that's also a really good book. Um, and we'll be drawing on it quite a bit uh, throughout this series. But today all I really wanted to refer to was um, the foreword by uh, the poet activist Wendell Berry. And in this foreword, um, Wendell Berry challenges, says that the challenge of the book, the challenge of the book is just to stop. And I guess in another way, that's another way of of saying wake up. Uh, Another way of stating the ultimate challenge of this series is for us to just stop and to explore, of course, the, the implications and applications of this idea of, of stopping, um, and we will do that throughout this series. But, yeah, right up front, I just wanted to start with that challenge for us to think about what it might mean to just um, stop and to cultivate habits of stopping in our lives. I've been working uh, full-time this year for the first time in about 10 years. And it's been an incredible struggle to to maintain a healthy emotional life, to stay stay in a good place. Um, A lot of this year has been struggling with a sense of having too many balls in the air and uh, struggling with the anxiety of that. And it's particularly tricky in uh, the relationship that I have with this community because on the one hand, uh, if, if you're in a kind of churchy, leadershipy type role, you feel like you have this responsibility to be in a, an emotionally healthy place, that you have a responsibility to model a life where there is rest, where there is time for contemplation. Um, and that what you share with the community is, is actually flowing out of, of that place rather than out of resentment or anxiety or panic. Um, but at the same time, there is, you know, there's a great sense of res- responsibility in this kind of role too, in that sense that you, you want to be doing a good job, you want to be giving people their their money's worth. Um, And this becomes particularly concentrated when you're preparing a talk um, because you want it to be good. You want it to be somewhat, at least, coherent. You want it it to be a bit memorable and a little bit creative. Um, But you also don't want to end up shouting at your kids because you're trying to finish a paragraph and they want to watch ABC iView. You don't want to be an absent father so that you can be a present pastor. Um, so for me, you know, this pur- the purpose of the series, this idea of waking up, this idea of stopping is very, um, is very important. Yeah, so hopefully this series will be helpful for me, if not for you. Um, but I really want to find ways of, of resolving that tension where I can um, yeah, feel like I am resting, feel like I am having time 
contemplation and prayer, and yet at the same time being able to to give things of value on a Sunday. Um, I think part of part of the answer is perhaps the you know less is more approach of saying fewer things, um, trying to prepare less, but um, prepare stuff that is is better as a result. But we will see. Um, But I think also what will help in this series is the fact that what we're dealing with here are some very concrete ideas. I think that will be easier for us all to get our heads around and easier for us all to um, to move with. Um, so anyway, bricks and bread. I'll talk a little bit about bricks and bread. Mitzrayim and Menuha I'll talk about later, but uh, let's, start with, let's start with bricks and bread. Um, Shane introduced us last week, so our series, if you weren't here last week, our series began last week. Um, and Shane introduced us to the idea of bread in the form of the Lord's Prayer. Um, and as we read the Lord's Prayer together, um, we asked ourselves what it might mean in a church where none of us have to struggle to get enough bread to live, what, what it might mean to ask God to give us our daily bread. Um, and I want us to hold, really hold on to this question throughout the series, this question of none of us struggle to get bread, so what does it mean to ask God to give us our daily bread? Um, in a way, it can act a little bit like a... A Cohen. I don't know if you're familiar with the notion of the Cohen. It's the um, it's a Buddhist, a Zen Buddhist idea of a little saying or a story that contains a paradox, and it's in wrestling with the paradox that you um, extract meaning. Um, so I guess that's the that's a paradox that I want us to struggle with in this series: the idea of um, when we have so much bread, what does it mean? to need daily bread. The other thing that Shane did is took us back to the source of the idea of daily bread in the Bible, which is um, the story of God giving manna to the people of Israel in the wilderness. Um, And we talked about this story. We'll talk more about it today. The story of Israel leaving Egypt, the land of brick-making slavery and then entering the wilderness, um, a wasteland where they were totally dependent on God's daily provision of manna. And again, at its heart, this is um, a question that we will be exploring in the series, the question of where exactly it is that we are living. Are we living in Egypt or are we living in the wilderness uh, on the way to the promised land? Are we living a life in pursuit of God's land, or are we, as Israel often did, um, desiring to return to Egypt or or living in Egypt, never having left? And again, we'll talk a lot over this series about what that actually means. What does it mean to to live in Egypt? What does it mean to live in God's land? 
Um, So this is the shape of our series in a, in a, in a slide. I'm going to go from bricks to manna um, through Exodus. Mitzrayim is the, the Hebrew word for, for Egypt. Um, that's not a magical word. It's just a place. But it, it's a word that over, over the centuries came to have a whole range of different meanings. And um, I was listening to... Um, a, podcast recently, Rob Bell interviewing a rabbi friend of his about six Hebrew words that his friend really loved, and this was one of them, Mitzrayim, um, because it, for Jews it, it didn't just connote Egypt, but it, it connoted all the ideas um, that were wrapped up in the idea of a land of slavery. So it represented hardship, it represented distress, it represented oppression, it represented a narrow, the idea of a narrow and constricted place. And so as we, as we look at this series, it's, it's kind of helpful to think of Mitzrayim rather than just Egypt because it, it helps us to realize that when we talk about Egypt, we're not talking about a place, but we're talking about a state that we can all live in and that we all need to escape from. Um, the word manuha is actually, in a way, the, the opposite. It, it, it's a word that started off as, um, as an idea or a state, but then came to be connected with a place. Um, so we first see this idea in Genesis 2, um, in the first creation story. Um, so on the sixth day, God creates human beings. Um, but this is not the end of creation. This is a, an amazing insight that was quite new for me, just reading this book, Living the Sabbath, that um, for much of Jewish tradition, um, the first, that first creation story is not complete with the creation of human beings. It's easy for us to think that the creation of humanity is the pinnacle of creation. But it's not. There's another day. There's the seventh day. And it's the day of rest. And it's a mistake, um, so the idea goes. It's a mistake for us to see rest as simply the cessation of work. Rest on the seventh day at the beginning of chapter 2 of Genesis is not a negative thing of ceasing to do something, but it's actually this, this positive experience of rest and tranquility and delight in creation. And so this idea of manuha is to say to us that creation, God's creation, is actually not complete until God has the chance to rest and delight in all that God has made. And it is this this kind of rest, um, this kind of delight in creation that we want to cultivate in this series. Um, Not rest as this negative non-work category, but something positive, something to do with delight and flourishing. Um, 
And what's really interesting is, as I said before, in Genesis, Manuha, the idea of rest starts as an idea of, of God, what God does to complete creation. But then in as we move through the Old Testament, it actually becomes a name for the land of Canaan. Um, in Deuteronomy 12, 9, God describes the land of Canaan that the, the people of Israel are about to enter as Manuha, uses this, this word as God's rest. Um, and so the idea of rest becomes an actual land. It becomes a destination. Um, and so again, as a spoiler alert, that this, this is the arc of our series. This is what we're trying to do. We're trying to, to move from a place of, of narrowness and brick-making to an expansive land of, of rest and delight uh, where God is. But unfortunately, today we're just going to talk about bricks. <laughs> Sorry. So we'll start with Egypt. We'll start with the bricks. Um, and uh, I'm going to throw it over to you a little bit now. So we're going to talk a little, look at a couple of passages and we're going to ask a couple of questions about what it makes, what it means to, to make bricks. Uh, so we'll do, that, do this through a couple of questions. The first question is, um, this is a question of why Pharaoh and everyone like Pharaoh, most cultures, um, become so keen on um, having so many bricks made? What's, what's in it for Pharaoh, all these bricks? Um, and I'm going to get Josh to, uh, to come and read the first. This is the first brick-making passage in the Bible. It's actually uh, from Genesis 11, the, what we think of as the Tower of Babel story. It wasn't a tower. It was actually a city, but, yeah, the Tower of Babel story. Thanks, Josh. All right. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Thanks, Josh. Um, so, so over to you. So the question is, yeah, why, why do these people make bricks? What does this passage tell us about the making of bricks? Why were the, the people in the earth at Genesis 11 making their tower, their city, and for Pharaoh, why was the making of bricks so important? Are there any clues in this passage, do you think? Think about it, like, because, like, a brick is really just, like, whatever you're going to make it out of, like, cement or, um, you know, you can make it out of mud or whatever. It's that compressed um, and then held in place until it dries. 
and then you can build something out of it. And I think, like, I read that and go, the initial idea is to take the brick and, like, pack all of their little community really tightly into this little tough little oblong thing that they can then build up. And then the part where it starts to fall over is that they're doing out of a place of fear. It's not like a love that's binding this little community brick together. It's like a, oh, crap, we need to protect ourselves. Let's shell up. I think there's um, the, the, the thing that's about a brick that's different to a stone, which is the other way of making it a strong building, is that it's a, a defined shape. So you can design the building you want and clearly they've got a vision there to build a city with a tower that's quite tall uh, and make a name for ourselves. So you could argue that it's um, as a result of a picture, a a desire that they wanted to build this thing that was symbolic or perhaps explained their power or or their standing or whatever it was. But yeah, clearly the brick was the bit that helped their design become reality. observation really it's just interesting that um that going back to that first sentence which is the whole earth had one language and the same words and so it's interesting that their fear or their reason it, like if otherwise it would be scattered ab- abroad upon the face of the whole earth it's like well it's not even like there's a sort of a sense of the other they're creating another already even though at the moment there's there's no other because everyone's got the same language and the same words um and then it's like, and then we'll make a name for ourselves and kind of build upon that. So it sort of feels like a very human instinct, but it's, why are they doing that? Um, I think what the gentleman was just saying then, but Matt, um, the brick, hi Matt, <laughs> um, is such a man-made when you see brick for stone. So this idea, and I guess it's pretty obvious, but they're making a name for themselves, so they believe, even though God gave them their brains (laughs) to come up with that. So I don't think there's anything wrong with making brick buildings because it's quite beautiful here. Um, But I think from, yeah, this change in that they were all able to come together and talk and think that they were creating something and not actually giving... um, I don't know, acknowledgement to God, the creator, in their process, and that was the missing part. It's interesting. I'm kind of cheating because I've read Genesis 12 as well. Um, But in Genesis 12, the first three verses are God calling Abraham and God saying, I will make make a name for you. And God, you know, here you have the whole world making a name for itself and God ends up dispersing them. And then in Genesis 3, you have one man leaving everything to go to another place because God says, I'm going to make a name for you. I'm going to make a nation out of your descendants that will unify the entire world. So it's, you know, Genesis 12 is the, the reverse, the exact reverse of this story. Um, but, it, you know, we, we've said it all anyway, that, that desire for making a name for ourselves, the desire to to do things, you know, autonomy and the pursuit of um, power, 
because it's here. I mean, it's all, it's all there. Um, and it's so, you know, it's so clear when you, when you look at empires generally, when you look at um, the construction of massive monuments to power that, it, you know, in the end it's all about uh, fear and it's about our, our own denial of our own mortality. Um, yeah, I love the way I do cryptic crosswords. I, I, you know, it's like Alcoholics Anonymous, isn't it? I, you know, I've been doing cryptic crosswords for 15 years. Um, I apologize. But um, what's amazing with things like cryptic crosswords, little, little uh, word puzzles, is the way that you, if you wrestle with them directly, you, you often struggle. But if you just sleep on it, next morning you'll wake up and go, oh, yeah, that's the answer. Some of those things have been happening this week where um, this poem, you know, just thinking about this poem called Ozymandias came to me um, during the week. Again, I'm a bit of a poetry nerd, so I studied a bit of poetry at university. And Ozymandias is by Percy Bysshe Shelley, who um, our daughter's middle name is Shelley, partly because it's supposedly a family name on Susie's side. Uh, So we have a bit of a connection to the Shelleys. And this poem um, came to me for a different reason and then it occurred to me, wow, it, it really connects with the story of the Tower of Babel and it really connects with the, uh, the story of Pharaoh in Egypt. So I thought, oh, maybe I could use that. And as I was researching it, I realised that Ozymandias is the Greek name for Pharaoh. <laughs> I was like, okay. And a particular Pharaoh, Pharaoh Ramesses II, who lots of people think was the Exodus Pharaoh. So there you go. Who knew? I do now. Um, so actually, I'll read this one, Josh. Yeah, it has hard words. Um, I met a traveller from an antique land who said. Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. That's a fantastic kind of ode to the futility of our own brick-making, how the mightiest empires, the mightiest human empires will eventually come to nothing. All that will be left is these relics that make a mockery of the claims of the empire. I mean, one of the things that empires do is that they, they create amnesia. They create the sense that the world has always been this way and always will. Um, and the American Empire is no, no exception. And we think the world this 
how can anything change the way things are now? And yet, if you look at history, every, every timeless eternal empire has been swept away. The second question, and I will finish with this, is um, just where does this brick-making lead? Where does all this brick-making lead? Where does this desire for empire, desire for power, desire to defy our own mortality, where does it, where does it lead? Um, and to answer this question, to explore this question, we're going to look at the, the most important brick-making passage, which is Exodus 5 um, and Josh. The lovely Josh is going to come and read that for us. It's quite long, so hang in there. Um, but as, as, as Josh reads it, just meditate on that question. Where, where does brick-making lead? Um, what is the life of the Israelite slaves like in this brick-making economy? Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. And they said, The God of the Hebrews has revealed himself to us. Let us go a three days journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord our God, or he will fall upon us with pestilence or sword. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their work? Get to your labors. Pharaoh continued, now they are more numerous than the people of the land, and yet you want them to stop working? That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people, as well as their supervisors, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But you shall require of them the same quantity of bricks as they have made previously. Do not diminish it, for they are lazy. That is why they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to the God, to our God. Let heavier work be laid on them. Then they will labor at it and pay no attention to deceptive words. So the, ta- so the, tasks ma- yeah. so the taskmasters and the supervisors of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be lessened in the least. So the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, the same daily assignment as when you were given straw. And the supervisors of the Israelites, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why did you not finish the required quantity of bricks yesterday and today as you did before? Then the Israelite supervisors came to Pharaoh and cried, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. Look how your servants are beaten. You are unjust to your own people. He said, You are lazy, lazy. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work, for no straw shall be given you, but you shall still deliver the same number of bricks. Israelite supervisors saw that they were in trouble, and when they were told, you shall not lessen your daily number of bricks. As they left Pharaoh, they came upon Moses and Aaron, who were waiting to meet them. They said to them, the Lord look upon you and judge. You have brought us into bad odor with Pharaoh and his officials, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Wow. 
Sorry to go all revised standard version on you. Not sure how that happened. Never mind. Um, still, get the gist. Um, so, yeah, again, any thoughts about that question as we read this passage, as we look at the brick making of the Israelite slaves? What do we learn about the effects of this kind of brick making economy on the people at the bottom, on the Israelites? I'm sure it brings to mind every bad boss that we've ever had. Um, but it also brings to mind the um, uniformity of work and the dehumanizing elements of bad work in that the creativity is um, sort of sapped out of us. Uh, we all make the same unit and that becomes the basis on which people judge our, our, our worth, our being, which is KPI. And it's not about the bricks that we're making at all. It's about the control that we're under. Just in general. Yeah. Yeah, it just really seems to be about keeping them so busy with work that they have no time to stop and be and think that this is really not the way the world should be. Um, the idea of creating scarcity as well, because it does happen. You know, they create a false scarcity and like perpetuate that. And it turns worship into a laziness and indulgence rather than an act that's necessary for you to live a full life. It's also interesting the way that the, the way this economy works means that um, people are turned against their own advocates. You know, so the people that are trying to create space for worship, the people that are trying to um, free them, then they turn on them because the nature of the system is to, um, to divide people, turn them against each other and to make us resent the people that are advocating on our behalf because the powers that be are punishing us for even asking for anything. The brutality of power that we, don't, we know that we can't really complain genuinely complain to power and so we just turn on the people that are trying to advocate on our behalf because they can't because power is so brutal that they can't get us what we what we need anything else yeah i feel like we've touched on yes the 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 key kind of ugly elements of it yeah, no, no place for rest, no place for celebration. Um, a desire for rest is met with punishment. To ask for rest shows that you are weak. Um, any kind of celebration is a waste of precious brick-making time. Um, quotas, quotas always increased 
must always be filled. Why? Who knows? Yeah, they just have to be filled. And the brick-making demands are re- relentless. You can never satisfy them. And I guess, too, something which is so present for us is, is the fact of life, life shaped around a commodity. Life, life shaped around production, around things rather than people. So it's pretty ugly, and yet, tragically, it's our default setting um, to live in Egypt, to live in Mitzrayim, to make bricks. Now, the Israelites were only out of Egypt a few days before they started to ask to go back. Um, and so that's, to finish, that's why the challenge we began with, to the challenge to stop, to stop making bricks, even for a time, to find space for rest and celebration is so important and so difficult. It requires incredible discipline um, or disciplines. It is something that we need to choose every day um, and in every moment. And I guess crucial, crucial to us choosing to stop, crucial to us choosing to rest, is having a powerful enough motivation um, to make that difficult choice. And I guess a huge part of that motivation is having an alternate vision um, of what life can be like. And I guess that's what what we hope to do in this series um, and what we'll begin with next week is to create a vision of of manna, of God's provision, and a a vision of manuha, this idea of God's rest, that can give us the motivation to make those daily choices to um, to stop um, and to to wake up and to find spaces for rest and celebration. But what we will do um, just in this moment is to uh, to have a taste of that manuha, have a taste of that celebration in the form of communion and in the form of a, a brief liturgy that I've, um, that I've taken from the, the Iona um, book of liturgies. We've talked about the Iona community before, but there are a, a community in, in Scotland that are committed to, um, to the earth, to nuclear disarmament, to justice and equality, and they've constructed a lot of liturgical resources around those Priorities, so they're quite beautiful. Um, so what we're going to do is, um, again, Josh is going to, am I going to do it or are you going to do it, Josh? I can't remember. I'll do it. Um, so what I'll get you to do is um, to come up to get yourself a little piece of cracker and a little piece of juice, and then before we eat and drink together, we're just going to go through a, a quick three-page liturgy um, uh, which in- includes um, a beautiful justice anti-brick-making creed, and then we'll eat and drink together. Um, so come and get a piece of cracker and a bit of juice and gather around the table, and then we will um, say this liturgy together. Ooh, that's tiny. <laughs> Can you intervene at all, Sam? problem when you convert things from one form to another.
No conversion. That should be the uh, policy of this community. Thanks, Sam. So, for the purposes of this liturgy, I am the leader. Don't be alarmed. Just, just, just for a few minutes, um, and then, and you are all. So, just to, in the interest of equality, you're capitalised. O God, who called all life into being. Your presence is all around us. Your spirit enlivens all who walk the earth. For creation to be freed from bondage. For captives to be released. Let's say this together. We believe in God, whose love is the source of all life and the desire of our lives, whose love was given a human face in Jesus of Nazareth, whose love was crucified by the evil that waits to enslave us all, and whose love, defeating even death, is our glorious promise of freedom. Therefore, though we are sometimes fearful and full of doubt, In God we trust, and in the name of Jesus Christ, we commit ourselves in the service of others to seek justice and to live in peace, to care for the earth and to share the commonwealth of God's goodness, to live in the freedom of forgiveness and the power of the spirit of love and in the company of the faithful, so to be the church for the glory of God 